Hello and welcome to Farmerama. And that was how it all began, with the mesmerising drums, the Shumei Taiko Ensemble. This month we're at the Oxford Veal Farming Conference, as we often are in the first week of the year. This time we were so pleased to be the official media partners. We were reporting live from the event on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll be bringing you much more over the coming weeks. ORFC is no normal conference. If you ever get the chance to go, it's a hive of activity, with knowledge sharing, singing, talking, and eating, all with a firm focus on real farming. The attendees bring with them a real sense of hope from around the world, and that feels like one of the most important parts of ORFC. Just remembering that there are many people out there doing amazing things to craft a better future for all of us, and that we are all in this together. This year, one of the keynote speakers was the phenomenal Leah Penniman. She's a farmer at Soulfire Farm and the author of Farming Wild Black. You might remember her because we did an episode with her a little while back as part of our Women of the Land series with Chelsea Green Publishing. Definitely tune in to hear more of her story there. But for now, we want to share her saying these powerful words. A quote from Malcolm X. Revolution is based on land. Land is the basis of all independence. Land is the basis of freedom, justice, and equality. The involvement of people of color in food and farming in the UK was a key theme at this year's conference. Why is farming still such a white-dominated sector? And who are the people already working to change this? We were very excited to hear from Jacina Callist, one of the co-founders of Land In Our Names, or LION for short. We were very inspired by the aims of LION, and so we wanted to share the exact words as stated on their website. LION seeks to uproot and disrupt systemic issues of land as they pertain to black people in Britain. We address land justice as a center point for issues around food insecurity, health inequalities, environmental injustice, and widespread disconnect from nature. We strive to creatively reimagine a country where black people can feel at home in rural settings, delight in nature as equally as their white peers, and be able to live off the land in ways which care for the soil, the surrounding biodiversity, and ourselves. Jacina told us a bit about setting up the organization and how she's been inspired by the work of Leah. I was lucky enough to visit Soulfire Farm in August 2019 and be part of the um, 
BPOC fire, so uh, the farmer immersion um, experience that they offer, um, which is a six day um, training and skills course around farming, um, which had a wide range of people, mostly from across um, the United States of America. Um, I was the only Brit, the only person from outside of uh, the US who was there. Um, and I was really lucky to see um, ancestral farming practices um, and be taught by someone who's so sort of hands-on and immersive and that um, this was the first time that I'd had um, any kind of farming or food growing training that was about um, social justice at the heart really and that the farm had a safer spaces policy that covered a wide range of isms and phobias um and so because i feel like britain is so far behind in that dialogue around rural spaces and um including social justice in farming um, I thought it was a really wonderful, unique opportunity to work with Leah in delivering a session here. And it had a really positive response um, and that we get to do a whole event tomorrow as well um, with Leah in attendance and lots of food growers and uh, farmers, uh, black farmers and uh, people of colour. Um, from across Britain, it seems, we've got attendees from Cardiff, from Bristol, um, right here in Oxford, um, fair few from London. Um, quite keen that our organising isn't too London-centric, um, but we've, yeah, we really tried to put the word out and um, I am just so elated that um, Leah and so many other people are coming and that we can make that work and really push forward the conversation around food justice, land justice, and farming. And they only started doing the farming immersion experiences, courses, um, I think in the last few years. Um, it was not the whole time that the farm has been running. Um, but because I have a fair few friends that are from the States, um, they told me about it because they knew I'd love it. And they, I've been growing and gardening um, in sort of ad hoc ways, like just because I had I had a garden and I had a, a, a mum who taught me bits and pieces and knew that nature connection was very much a part of um, how I thrive and how I feel grounded. Um, and that's unusual for, for black people in Britain. Um, although, you know, I come from a farming family on my dad's side where, um, yeah, he, he grew up in Grenada and would always talk about sort of land work. And my, my grandmother had like... Um, cocoa trees and mango trees and nutmeg and all of that um and it's just it's such a gulf between you know like my mum farming tomatoes and like little things and like flowers and stuff and then yeah the kinds of amazing things that my dad would talk about having eaten so there'd been a lot of that like seeking that connection for a while and I'd done permaculture courses and it's you know like, like Leah said in her um, keynote today uh, yesterday about um, permaculture being all these indigenous and African farming practices that have been sort of put together amalgamated in a cluster by college educated white men and then they've turned such a profit and these courses can cost so much money and I had been wondering where this all would come from 
Um, and I'd asked that on a food forest course that I did in Portugal, and you can be met with really blank stares around, um, you know, what does permaculture mean before it meant that, like, you know, we've only just started farming since what, Bill Mollison, or who was the first permaculture dude, just before I went to Salt Fire Farm was when Lion was founded, but definitely all the work that they'd been doing, um, particularly around the reparations map that combined with um, me reading the Land for the Many report and thinking, okay, this is all super important, but we're not talking about me here. We're not talking about people like me in this report. You know, refugees get a mention, people with mental health conditions get a men mention. I mean, what do we know about people with mental health conditions? They're predominantly people of color, overrepresented in, you know, psychiatric wards and, um, you know, black Caribbean people being um, diagnosed with psychosis or being given sort of harsher medications um, than their white counterparts. So, um, we know that there's disconnect with nature for uh, you know the wider population, but what we also know is that there's disproportionate effects on uh, people of color or people that would be considered BAME, Black and Asian minority ethnic, these awkward acronyms that they use. Um, so we do need specific projects, collectives and movements that address um, our needs and um, Lion was a way that I felt brought together um, what we could take, like the best of the, the lessons and messages from around the world. Um, and it's not just America that has been sort of providing these, these influential messages because um, there's a lot that's happening here in terms of like uh, land justice movements and um, land workers' rights, but these can be quite white spaces. And then we have to take inspiration as well from all around the world. We also spoke to Ian Solomon Cowell, who runs the community-led food growing space May Project Gardens, which he designed using permaculture principles. Here he runs Hip Hop Gardens and works with a mix of people, including young refugees and asylum seekers, to connect with nature in urban environments, to address trauma, improve physical and mental health, as well as learn practical skills such as growing and music production. At OOFC this year, Ian got everyone making music and shared his experiences of putting social justice at the core of his work with the land, including some of the challenges he faces, particularly as a black person working in food and growing. So we plant more trees so that we can breathe. Plant more trees so that we can breathe. Plant more trees so that we can breathe. Cut down the trees, there's no more you and me. So we plant more trees so that we can breathe. We don't, although I live in the UK, I'm not a white person. So I have a whole culture that came before Britain. You know, my parents from South America, my history is from Africa. You know, there's such a, a range of history within the green movement, within growing, like that, that's, I mean, how far do you want to go back? Like, it's, it's what we've come from. We got displaced from, not everyone got displaced, but we got, the, it's one of the largest, it's the largest displacement of people in the world, or removal of people in the world. You know, that's how Britain became Great Britain. But yet, I'm still fighting to be heard. It's just, 
what is your response to what I'm telling you? How are you going to support us? How are you going to amplify us? That's what I'm interested in. Who's the allies? That, that's where things will change. And my main thing is access to land is resources. Um, in permaculture, they talk about fair share. Okay, well, I work from my council house and I've been going 13 years on a project and I've engaged thousands and thousands of people, not just in the UK, across the, but I still lack of resources. You know, there's money out there. The money's not just, it's not just about money, it's also about expertise. But again, because you have to deal with us on a face-to-face, -face, on a one-on-one, -on -one, people, that the whole thing about power and privilege is that people, what they tend to do is they'd rather reinvent it. We have the one of the most diverse food system, our history of sugar, sugar, tea, and chocolate. Those three ingredients transformed this, this you know, like the world. And yet we're still struggling to to be a part of this movement. So that's what we're, that's what I'm wrestling. And you know, I'm also, I think what's really interesting is this, I'm a black person, but, and you know, with a history diverse, like African Caribbean history and African history, but yet I still live in a predominantly white area. That's a whole different conversation. Like, you know, it's, it's great when you have black power movements and there are quite a few still in the UK do really good stuff, but I don't, I'm not surrounded by, um, like people who know that they're feeling of oppression and, and so therefore will have the results or come together in unity. I didn't have that. So what I did, I withdrew to something that was just as important, which is nature. Malcolm X said, you know, um, land is, a just, is, is the most important struggle for justice. I think that's a bad paraphrase. Check the phrase. I've forgotten what it is. It's my dyslexia, I apologize. Nature, getting into that also was more my perspective was about a healing tool. And that was the start of this journey. It was really about the healing for myself, a personal journey. And when I saw it could help me and transform me, I was like, it can help other people, particularly people that have experienced marginalization, systematic oppression, marginalization, discrimination, you know, all these things. Nature, reconnect with it. It's a beautiful, beautiful tool. That's what it did for me. So if, I, if it did that for me, I believe this tool, this, this understanding, not even tool, this, this insight or this re-inquiry into nature can do that for other people and present it in a way that makes them feel they, they get it. Resources and funding is so important because it allows us to basically be present in these spaces, that predominantly white spaces that people don't even question, like they have a conversation about all these issues, but we're never present. Well, because one, we're not welcomed, we're not encouraged, we're not, you know, how do you actually funding wise? How do you become, how do you even attend? Like, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a double impact financially. If I'm a grassroots organization, I come to this project, that's a cost. Two, if I have to get then someone to cover my time, which I mean to do that frontline work, we need to be seen as experts. No, not seen as I'm an expert. And I don't want to come from a place of ego but it's come from a place of experience and success. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's so amazing, da, 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 da. So why aren't you investing in it? Why aren't we doing it in your community? Why aren't we doing it? That's what should happen naturally. But if it's not, then there's a question of the reasons why. That's not for me to explore. I know that the reasons why, but the responsibility has to come from other people to take the ownership of that and challenge that as well. You know, the people, the victims of oppression, the ones that find the solutions, but it's not, can't be done in isolation. It has to be done with people that have power and have resources You've got people like Mama D who's here, D who's here, 
you've got um, the beekeeping lady, Carol. You've got, there's a range of amazing organizations wilding in the city, organically. Like it's people that, black people that work there. Um, Abele, like it's starting to, when I first started doing this, I felt like I was the only person that was really doing it. But actually there's a re, not a reawakening, there's a reconnection with nature to inform our practice. And it's just like how I describe a tree. You see the stuff like above the soil is the mainstream. There's a whole system, us, people that are not seen, that are doing stuff in the background or underneath. And it's dynamic and it's refreshing. It's, and we just have to connect more. And um, yeah, it's, there's, a range of there's a range happening in the UK, a range up and down, stuff that I don't even know about. So yeah, just connecting that, amplifying that voices, resourcing it better. That's, you know, there's elders that, you know, if you, for example, if you, one woman was talking about flowers and she was saying even the way in which the flowers or the gardens designed reminds of a part in Jamaica called Clarendon. Like it's a deep knowledge, like food growing, cocoa, chocolate, Africa, Ghana, like, do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's so deep within us. So being in the urban environment is such a vital thing to do. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy to see more and more people getting involved in it. Get involved or support, you know, there's, it's funny, I had a conversation with a guy that was on Facebook recently and he was like, you know, I'm working, I've got this, I'm doing that, how can I help? And I was like, that's not for me to decide. Where's the lack? Where do you think we need support? And then he just put some money in a bank account the next like two days later. Perfect, I've got a letter from someone, hundred pounds sent from a conversation. Like, although we've getting money now, like this, there's nine years of us not having resources and all for the, to continue this work, it needs expertise and resources. That's what we need. Expertise in terms of people who work with us or support us and resources in terms of finance as well to ensure that, for example, I said that it's a council house. I don't own the house. I've been working out of my home for 13 years. So that's the main thing, allyship. And allyship where we listen to and you get to know us, and then you decide what action to take, not telling us what we need to do. We know what we need to do. Take a deep breath. Let's go. Calls for allyship were heard time and time again at ORFC. This links to another theme we heard repeatedly over the two days. As humans, we've got to acknowledge our place as part of the ecosystem and embrace regenerative farming, in particular diversity, to ensure that we nurture the habitat we live in. If we continue to pretend that nature is something external to us, we will continue to extract from it. Put another way, if regenerative agriculture only serves white people, it's failed.
Miriam Rose co-manages the Hardwick Estate in South Oxfordshire with her brother and father, where they're working to reform age-old aristocratic dynamics and find new models of land ownership, which share responsibility for and governance of the land. At ORFC this year, she was one of a few landowners who announced their intention to explore alternatives to anachronistic land ownership models, looking to share their land for the many. Because of the way we were brought up, me and my brother both had a feeling from when we were younger that we didn't want to be different to, you know, the local kids and, and other people. And as we went on through life, being exposed to certain people and certain literature and ideas about land reform, we realised not only that there's a problem with aristocratic model of ownership, that our family, whilst being very kind and benevolent landowners, having, you know, running affordable housing, making the estate organic... There was a paternalistic power structure, which was not only not empowering for people on the land and not not engendering responsibility in people, um, but also was a burden on our family. And that and that was really the main motive. That for many generations, the land, the inheritance of land, has has been seen as a burden. It's particularly, the male inheritors have really really struggled with that. Um, and you know, even for my brother and I, although we've never been pressured to, to inherit, we both felt that we had to come back, you know, and that restricted what we, what we wanted to do. We probably would have gone on to have different kind of careers and we didn't want to pass that burden on to another generation. We want to feel that we have an equal part in the land, that our family still has a part there like everyone else, you know, has a, a place on the land, but we don't want to be in a position of difference, of, um, of overt power or of having excess responsibility, which, which leads to a burden. We, you know, we both came back at quite a young age in our 20s, which is unusual because we felt we should use the energy and passion we had at that age to really try to move these ideas on, see what we could do. We want to make a change before it passes to us. So we want to set up some kind of other ownership structure with some level of community involvement um, for the land to be passed to before my dad's death. Um, we don't know what that's going to look like yet, but we've given ourselves two years and we started that process a little while ago two more, well, one more year now, to look at the different ownership models and look at what works. But ultimately, it will be something that, that has some community involvement, some family involvement, and probably some outside involvement as well in terms of trustees, whether that will be a, a cooperative or a community benefit society or a charity or a t- traditional trust. And, you know, the, the, the honest fact is this, is, this is a tricky issue. There are many, many models that are struggling out there and very few that are working really well. Then again, there's probably very few privately owned estates that are also working really well for the family. So I think there's something in recognising that land ownership, and especially ownership of estates with all their complexities, is, is difficult. And, you know, it's always going to be a process of working, you know, changing and being fluid and, and working with people and trying, you know, trying to get the best fit. But I don't think there's ever going to be a really easy sort of silver solution. I mean, I think what, what I was sort of talking about in, the, in our talk just now um, was about a top-down, looking at a model which is both top-down and bottom-up, because from what we've seen so far, it seems to be one or the other. There are, in, in terms of, you know, larger estates, and I'm not talking about small farms, which actually have quite different, you know, quite different situations, but there are kind of family trusts where families have... Um, have a vision and they've set a criteria and they've put it into a charity or a trust which is meant to continue in the family's name, like Dartington. 
And then there are real, real bottom-up models like the community buyouts in Scotland, like the Isle of Egg or Noida or um, Ascent, where the community has chucked off the landowner, bought the land out and done completely bottom-up. So we're not in a position, you know, we see that we, we, we see the issues with a top-down model where you, you know, the family in a way imposes their vision onto the community. We don't want to do that. We want to work together with the community to, to um, come up with a vision that we all agree on and to, be, to move that forward, giving people, giving the future committee or, you know, ownership committee of the estate, which hopefully will continue to include family if they want to be included, um, enough freedom to move with the times and, and, you know, and be creative and be flexible, but also enough clear criteria that we don't lose our organic status or, you know, end up, end up getting sold or it ends up getting turned into massive housing development. So for us, that's the big question is what's that line between, between clear criteria and, you know, being quite um, restrictive in a way, but, and also giving freedom and what's the line between family involvement and actually family getting out of the way so that something more progressive can, can emerge. There's a big process of research and obviously the process which is only just starting now is also consulting with the community because we haven't, until we, until we were more clear about our vision and clear about where we wanted to go, we, we haven't really been ready to be really upfront, you know, about the community with this, but we're now at the stage where, where we're, we're doing that and we're about to do that. I mean, we speak to people in the estate all the time, so most of them know exactly where we're coming from. I'm sure they all gossip about it. Uh, but you know, this, this is, needs to be a collaborative process. So it's also about starting to talk to our community, which, which is a mixture of um, mixture of people. You know, we're not an intentional community. They're not people who've all come, brought into the same vision. They're people who've lived there for generations. They're young people who've come in who are very idealistic. It's a big mix and we love that. We, we want it to, to, to continue to be a mixed traditional community. Um, so everyone's view is really important to us and, every, and, and the history that they all come with. But we don't, we don't want to continue it as it is. Actually, it has to change because we're not willing to carry on. So how can we do this sensitively in a way that does work for everyone and respecting people who um, may have lived for generations on the estate and actually love things the way they are, respecting that opinion as well and saying, look, what is it you love about it? And what is it you're scared of, in, you know, that you're scared of in terms of change and how do we deal with those fears and listen to those concerns as well so I think it's got to be sensitive process um, where there's a certain amount of, again the top down is saying look this has to happen from our perspective but not in just imposing something on people but working with people to to make it work for everyone we don't want to alienate people actually and we don't want to become a uh, just an idealistic community of one sort of kind of one sort of person we're more interested in the organic and I don't mean organic agriculture, no, the, the organic rural communities as they are with all their differences and how we can move them on, not how we can just create kind of idealised communities, but how we can actually move on the traditional rural community in Britain. Um, and our vision is to have the maximum number of rural livelihoods. In a way, we, our, our sort of romantic vision is like a return to, um, you know, a land-based, sort of traditional land-based community, like a feudal community, but without the feudal part, you know, where there's lots of artisan crafts and there's lots of people supported by the land, but on secure terms. So whether that's woodworkers, uh, horse loggers, health practitioners, everything that the land can support. So we're always trying to bring in more people and more interesting, you know, businesses that, that fit the vision of, of being artisan crafts and being rooted in the land and being sustainable. 
And we're also trying to create a real working economy. So we want to be a resilient, secure economy within the estate as much as possible, where we, we're as self-sufficient as possible. Uh, we barter and trade goods within the estate and then we sell them outside of that so that we're also resilient to outside from outside shocks such as Brexit, um, oil prices, etc. You know, we really, we're really looking after ourselves and then looking after the local community by providing quality produce. What Miriam talked about is just the tip of the iceberg and part of a wider theme at ORFC, which we were very excited by. Questioning the economic and business structures that have served many people for the last few centuries and recognizing that they're based on the extractive mindset, which actually doesn't fit with our new regenerative paradigm. We got a few different people's perspectives on this, which we'll share over the coming episodes. People building new definitions of success, trying new approaches to land ownership, and thinking about business models that are regenerative in their very makeup. To sing us out, here's the ORFC attendees joining together in Amazing Grace, led by Robin Gray. As was reminded to us as the song was introduced, it's a song about awakening from a state of ignorance, a sentiment which we'll continue to think on as we work to chart a course away from enabling a food and land system based on exploitation, destruction, and injustice. Farmerama is made by Joe Barrett, Katie Revel, and myself, Abby Rose. In this episode, there were interviews from Darley Eno and Kathy St. Germans, and editing from Louis Hudson. Community support was by Hannah Söderland, Fran Bailey, Annie Landless, Eliza Jenkins, and Olivia Oldham. And our theme music is by Owen Barrett. We've also heard some music recorded at this year's ORFC. Amazing Grace was sung at the closing plenary, and the other songs are from a session led by Robin Gray at St. Aldate's Church. A final thank you to Fran, Hannah, and Olivia for keeping everyone updated on social media throughout the conference. You did a wonderful job. And thanks, of course, to Fran Price, Hannah Fenton, Ruth West, and Catherine Mansell and the whole team at the Oxford Real Farming Conference who made the magic happen. We'll be back again next year, no doubt. Toodaloo!